This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. They have been committing horrific crimes against humanity for 1,700 years, and there is no accountability. And when there is no accountability, something happens in your brain that tells you that you are justified in doing what you're doing. Having no accountability for people means that you are investing in the future of oppression because you embolden it. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. So we're really excited for today's guest. Um, our, our guest almost needs no introduction. For for those of you who uh, are listening and are kind of involved in some of the the deconstruction spaces, you probably all know already know who this is. But we'll go ahead and give an introduction. Um, so we have on the podcast today Joe Lumen, and Joe is uh, kind of. A, a voice and influencer. So I, although I hate the word influencer, I don't know why I said that. But sort of. Um, I forgive you. Uh, it's, very... it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Very, like a very passionate and compassionate voice in uh, the ex-evangelical space, and we are so so grateful that uh, Joe has has decided to join us, and we'll give her the option to uh, to talk or opportunity to kind of talk about various projects that she's working on. But I do want to say one thing. So this is the first time we're actually also uh, doing a live podcast recording where um, if you are uh, a part of our Patreon, if you support us on, on Patreon, you will get occasional links to live recordings. So you can hop in and you can join us for, for a live recording session. Uh, so we do have someone in chat and every once in a while I might even hop in and just make a comment about the chat. Um, so we've got our good friend Scott in the chat today. Apparently, Scott has never heard of you, Joe. So I know. I, <laughs> I, I understand that. I, I understand like, that. Who's your guest? <laughs> I, was, <clears throat> I was with Scott last weekend in Portland, but I, I tried to get his attention, but he was just not having it. Scott, not Scott wrote in the chat. She looks I think, I think he doesn't. <laughs> I think he doesn't look like he doesn't like Colombians. It was a, you know, it was a whole thing. So, yeah, it's fine. Oh, Scott, there's this rivalry we didn't tell yeah. you about between Japan and Colombia. I think it might have something to do with soccer or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah. We're so good and make Japanese people look bad. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, J- Japan failed to colonize Colombia, is what Scott said. Okay, I'm gonna ignore. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and ignore the We're chat for a little side, while side this is starting to. <laughs> but I don't know if I would have preferred that than the Spaniards. So yeah, I, and now oh. I am mad at Japanese people. Like, how dare you not colonize us? <laughs> Yeah. How dare you? Why was it not you? Yes, please. Yeah, speaking that's Japanese really good instead of good Spanish. Going on. <laughs> right? Oh, uh, okay, so um, Joe, thank you for, for coming and, and hanging out with us. Uh, we know life is probably really chaotic for you right now. You've got a lot going on. Um, and and uh, at the time that we're recording this, you just came off of a, a live stream podcast recording um, that you're doing yourself. Your last episode for your podcast, right? Yeah. For the season? Yes, it was the last episode for the first season of my podcast. And I decided to go live and share a little bit of what's been going on over over here. It's a lot. It's I and and we're so we're just so grateful that you would take the time to to hang out with us. So our conversation uh, this evening, we want to we we want to let 
everybody kind of get a sense for the the work that you're doing and the spaces that we have sort of come out of how we look at those spaces given the things that are going on there um, and even some of the spaces that we have since entered because we you know you leave community and and uh, one of our our friends Janice has often said if, if you've been harmed and hurt in community, uh, there is some element of healing to be found in community. And so many of us who have left um, white evangelical spaces then enter the ex-evangelical space hoping for some healing in that community. And, and some of us, many of us do find healing in, in these spaces, but uh, we've found also the continuation of further harm. Um, and so for our conversation tonight, I think it'd be great for us to kind of talk about some of that, um, yeah. to let you kind of talk about your own work because you're doing some amazing work that we're excited to, uh, to hear about and be a part of. So, um, Joe, before we even dive into any of that, could you give us like a quick overview who you are, where you come from, how you ended up in this sort of world? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited. I like to have conversations with Kindred spirits. Um, and I am Colombian. I was born and raised in Colombia. I moved to the United States to do an internship at a white evangelical church and also to get my master's degree in ministry and theology at Point Loma Nazarene University. And I did both and worked inside of white evangelical churches for 10 years. I got ordained as a pastor. Um, my husband did too. And we worked for 10 years and we worked really hard. We did a lot of things and uh, we were so uncomfortable. <laughs> there were so many things that were just so uncomfortable, a lot of financial exploitation, a lot of uh, religious abuse. <clears throat> and you cannot really recognize all of these things when you're inside. You can only feel them in your body. You feel something is just not right. And you feel so deeply oppressed by this space, especially if you are in the body of a person of color, especially if you're in the body of a woman, especially if you're in the body of a queer person, which all of those are my reality. And you just feel so oppressed, but you cannot pinpoint what the problem is because you've been so conditioned to believe that these spaces are good spaces, right? The, the idea is that Christian churches are good places, that they are safe places. And your body continues to tell you that that's not true. And so when I was able to finally gather enough courage and safety to walk away from the church, I started on this journey of healing. And people kept telling me and my husband, just start a church, just start a church. And I was like, no, I don't want to start a church because I can recognize inside of me the same things that are inside of all of these pastors that have hurt me. And I don't want to become them. And I know I will become them unless I take the time to sit down and figure out what are those things inside of all of us? And I started to recognize the, the supremacy culture that is so deeply embedded in inside of Christian white evangelical spaces. And by supremacy culture, I mean these ideologies that they are better than, that they are superior, that they have the answers, that they know the, the, the right God, that they know the right way of existing, that you can only be happy, joyful, um, at peace if you follow the rules that they have set before us. Um, and I started to deconstruct all of these ideas of supremacy and what I call now decolonize, which uh, helped me start to reconnect with a lot of my roots and a lot of my actual person, which who I really am and not the boxes that I had been asked to fit into. And I started to expand into the fullness of who I am. 
Um, and the more that I did that, the more that I found healing, the more that my relationships found healing, the more that I was able to know exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, and, and I tell people that the work that I do is really not a job for me. It's not also, it's not an alternative. Uh, this is an extension of who I am. It's, it's really just all of the work that I've done of healing, all of the work that I've done of figuring out who I am has led me to do what I do and has led me to have the conversations that I have to fight for the things that I fight, to be the kind of mother that I am, the kind of friend, the kind of partner. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of in short, uh, who I am and where I come from and why I ended up doing or why I am doing still the things that I do. I had a quick question related to that because I know that you're you're also an eight wing on the Enneagram, which I am. <laughs> and um, when I look back at myself, let's say, you know, you've gone through a really um, you've gone through a traumatic church experience and you've taken the time to heal and, and you're in the process of healing. Um, of course, you, as stuff happens, you know, you're always faced with some new things and then you got to regroup and, and reheal because these spaces can be really difficult when you're confronting this stuff and uh, you get targeted a lot. And I've seen that recently and I know you're taking a step back and we'll probably get into that. But I guess when I look at myself a couple of years back or, you know, before I started to really shift and change in my beliefs, you know, while I was still in that space and totally devoted to it, um, are there pieces of who you are? Like right now, I know you through... Uh, a lot of the people we've had on our podcast, we've been connected through our, our friends, at, like through different schools we've been at or churches or experiences like that. The reason why we wanted to have you on our podcast, I know you just through online and it's through your speaking out. It's through you calling out like church abuse and stuff like that. And, and when I've seen it, I've just been like, yes, 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 <laughs> please keep talking about these things. This is important. This voice is needed. This has been really helpful. Um, you know, the first person I've sought, we've sought out that's not really connected to our circles specifically, but we do talk so much about church abuse. And so that connects with, with what we appreciate about the work that you're doing and, and discussing these things, the supremacy culture, all the problems in evangelicalism that when you're in it, you don't see it. And if I go back on Facebook five, 10 years, you know, when I started noticing things were wrong and I look at stuff I wrote, I'm a little like I look at myself and it's hard sometimes to recognize me. And I have to sometimes uh, like, was I always this outspoken? Did I always feel like pushing against everything? And I'm curious, like younger Joe, which pieces of you do you see in, in who you were before that connect to where you are now? I'm just like, I don't know. It's a yeah. random curious question, but as the type of people we are that love fighting injustice, like did you, are there certain things about who you used to be when you didn't see all of that, that kind of pushed you into those spaces of being where you're at yes. now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I actually have never shared these with people publicly, not much of it, but um, I come from a very particular family. <clears throat> my family is very, um, it's a patriarchal family where my grandpa is at the head and everybody does what grandpa says and everybody works for grandpa's business and um, everybody's afraid of grandpa and which is fine. You know, like it, it, he was an indigenous man that moved to Bogota when he was seven years old and started working. And, um, he's had to be very, very tough to be able to survive all of that. And he started making money and started a business and the business was really successful. And so all of his kids ended up, you know, just depending financially on him, uh, which is a type of control too. <clears throat> and my mom was the first of his children that was like, nope, leaving, and so she did. And she moved away from the family. And by away, I mean like 40 minutes away, not super away, because that's not allowed. Um, and I was the first grandkid who left too. Uh, but I left the country, 
the full entire country. And I said, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to go do this Christian thing that I want to do. And I think that it was a way of me setting boundaries without being able to have the, re the right tools to be able to set boundaries with my family. Uh, and we have a totally different relationship now. We, my family and I have been on a, going on a journey of healing and working uh, on having better relationship with one another. But I can see these fighter in me. My mom and I were talking a couple of days ago and she said, what people don't know about you is that you come from a lineage of warriors. Uh, and she means that because of some of the indigenous blood that we have inside of us and some of the ways in which her and my grandpa have chosen to exist in the world. We are a people that are just warriors. That's what we do. And her, my grandpa and I are very similar, have very similar personalities. And so I see all of that in me. And then I end up in the church. I end up in all of these schools that are white evangelical schools. And I am the one that is raising her hand and saying, like, I don't get that. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't like that. I don't I don't I want you to explain that to me. That doesn't make sense to me. And I was always viewed as this person that was the problem. Like, it's like, why can't you just go with the flow? And I was like, because it doesn't sit well with me and I don't like it. I just don't like it. And so. I, I found to myself that the further, the more that I was inside of white evangelical spaces, the more that that part of me was actually shrunk, like pushed down and it was looked down on. And so I learned to be loud in different ways. Um, but mostly I was feeling very silenced at all times. And that was part of the oppression that I was feeling too. These like, we don't want to, we want to, we want your work, but we don't want to hear your voice kind of. Uh, thing, but at every staff meeting, I was the one being like, I don't like that. Why are we doing that? I remember some of the last staff meetings that I attended, the pastor was adamant that we needed to get a fog machine. And I was adamant that that was a ridiculous way of spending money. So I was like, why the fuck are we going to spend money on a fog machine when there are some members in our congregation, including me, who works full time for this church, who cannot afford health care? Like, it makes no mm. sense to me that the money is going to be used on fog machines while I literally have to drive all the way to Mexico to be able to be seen when I'm sick. Uh, and I work for this church. You're not even taking care of your employees, but you want to get a fog machine? And he was like, well, wow. it's just the atmosphere. And I'm like, what damn atmosphere? Like, don't we believe in this God that doesn't need an atmosphere? Like, why do we have to perform? Why do we have to... Uh, we, we're manufacturing something that should just exist. We're manufacturing an emotion in people. And he was like, can you just shut up? And he didn't say that, but he meant that. <clears throat> and so they would do things like they gave, they sent me a, a turkey. I don't celebrate Thanksgiving. I'm Colombian. And for Thanksgiving, that last year that I was leaving, they sent me a turkey and a basket of food and they were like we just know that you don't have enough money and i'm like yeah because you don't pay me enough um so we wanted to bless you with these and i was like i am out of town because for thanksgiving we would always go out of town because it was a couple of days off that we had and we don't celebrate thanksgiving i was like i'm out of town and now there is a turkey at my door and so at the staff meeting i said like i don't understand why you sent me that it made me really uncomfortable and the wife of the pastor goes it's because you're proud and we wanted to teach you humility so they were always doing that thing of making me wow. small. You know, she was like, we wanted to teach you humility because you don't like to receive gifts. And I was like, I just don't need the damn turkey. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. Wow. Like, give me a gift that I actually need, <laughs> like healthcare. I would receive healthcare. Right. That would be great. Yeah, you're um, like, I can accept things. Just put them, take just them from the things list, that I don't you know? want. <laughs> yeah. And then I learned that they were given that turkey and they didn't know what to do with them. And so they sent um, me one. Of course. Um, of course. Yeah. But, you know, like things like that, I can see my personality always kind of trying to come out. And I was shamed so much for having that personality. 
And so now when it still happens um, with everything that is going on in social media with me and people keep asking me, like, just apologize, just apologize. So that like, just shrink, just be small, just back up, mm. just back out. And I'm like, no, no, no. because that is no. oppression to me. To me, that is no. oppression when you don't let me voice my feelings and my opinions, when you don't let me exist in my fullness, but you demand that I fit into boxes that are acceptable to you. I don't need to be accepted to you to be able to exist. I get to exist. Yeah. That's it. And the yeah. aid in me has come more and more out as um, I've, I've moved further and further away from places where I am not tolerated, where I am not accepted. Actually, I'm tolerated if I work, but I'm not accepted mm. as I am. Mm. And that's big. I think, especially when we're talking about churches, right? Like the, I mean, I we we chatted before we hit record. Um, you know, I come from uh, a a pretty wide swath of of different evangelical spaces, but but the last evangelical space I was in was Hillsong, and they have this sign that they plaster everywhere: "Welcome home." You know, they love to talk about "Come as you are." Come as you, and this was when I left fundamentalism. So I grew up in the um, independent fundamentalist Baptist world. Um, I ended up at Bob Jones University, and I had never heard that idea of "Come as you are." Well, they well, were actually, kind of up I, front. I, they were kind of up right. front that you can't come as you are. It's not good. Right. And like, here's right. all the things you need to change to be exactly. acceptable. So so for me, finding a, a church that was sort of like the cool place where you could wear jeans and like, if you want to have a beer after church, you can do that. And the pastors will sit and have a beer at the bar with you. Um, and so moving from from the fundamentalist world into that world, it was a bit freeing, but I was privileged because I wasn't a, a class of person that didn't have um, access to things. I wasn't queer. I'm a man, I'm a, I'm a straight man. So so there are, certain, there are plenty of areas that are available to me in a church setting, but it didn't take too much longer for me to recognize that um, I'm not white. It's funny how mm. church becomes that that first place where I recognize um, my ethnicity and it's not in a good way. It's not me like wanting to take hold of uh, of my ethnic background and, and my cultural heritage, but it's it's sort of that awakening of, oh, well, this is the space you live in. Like I remember at one church that I worked at, obviously a very, very white church and the town that we're in or the, the next town over has the highest population of black and Latinos in, in, in New Jersey. Well, one of the highest populations of black and Latino people in New Jersey. So we had, there was a black woman that was, that came and, and was chatting with our executive pastor, my boss. And after they talked, he comes up to me and he's like, you know, Nate, we need to, we need to have a conversation about as to why there aren't more people of color in this church. I'm like, why me? Yes. <laughs> why do I have to be in that? Uh, like, I, you are now representative I, of all yeah. non-white people, Nate. <laughs> Speak to I know. I, I don't know why. Uh, I grew up in white why, in, why? in the white world. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking when you were telling your story, I was like, but Joe, didn't you know that the Holy Ghost it is pneuma, breath, smoke, smoke. There you go. It's all connected. You have Obviously. to have a smoke machine in order for oh. the Holy Ghost to appear, See, right? See, I needed you to be my pastor because that would have convinced me. <laughs> oh, man. I get it. Yeah, the the idea of a fog machine um triggering oh, from Hillsong. It's yes, from, okay, from being at Hillsong. You're you <laughs> like even in that um you know, the responsibility, it's just amazing because inside of white spaces, inside of white evangelical spaces, the responsibility of uh having diversity falls on us. 
I remember mm-hmm. the pastor asking me similar questions. He was like, I want more diversity. I want more diversity. Like you should. And he would tell me and I'm like, the hell do you want me to do about it? Like, do you like, do you think that we have like a call? Do you think that we have like a Superman, like a, no, a Batman, you know, light that he's like, Hey guys, we're here. Like, come. Yes. Like, what do you signal. think that we have like a, a little signal that we are like, Hey, black, brown and Asian people here. Like, what do you think that we're supposed to do? The reason that people of color are not here is because they don't feel safe here. Like, and that's not on me. Mm-hmm. That's not on me. That's yeah. not my responsibility. You're the leader of this institution. Therefore, they don't feel safe with you. And he, I'm a good preacher. I'm a really good preacher. I don't say that in ways that, it, like, I'm not being, you know, it's, 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 it's just a fact. I'm a good preacher. Some people are good writers. Some people are good preachers. Some people are good drawers. I'm terrible at drawing. I'm terrible at cooking. Don't ask me to cook. I will poison you. But I'm a good preacher. And... The pastor would tell me often, I don't like when you preach. When I preached, people loved it because I am very studious and I can read the Hebrew and the Greek. And so I was able to get like into these very deep uh, places that were more like Jewish realities than Christian. And it was just really good. And he would tell me, I don't like when you preach because your accent is just really, it's really difficult to understand. He never had an issue when we had Australians because we had a lot of Australians coming. He never had an issue when we had an English pastor he never had issues with any white people that had an accent but me he could not understand I, it was just too hard it was just so difficult to understand me and i'm like I'm you know little, I, I remember thinking i don't think you have that, a, that was right? the reason uh, right yeah i was like you don't have, I have a feeling if you accent. have the same accent and you were in a male body it might be just a tiny bit different well if <laughs> i had if i was him you know, he wouldn't have mm-hmm. like, he wouldn't have an issue. Uh, he had an issue with the response I got from my messages because he made evident that his messages were recycled from Craig Rochelle and Carl Lenz and oh Brian Houston. And, you know, that Ooh. he was stealing messages from all of these other people. But mine weren't. Mine were mine. I like fought He's for them. Stealing messages from boring white people. The, those messages were never that good. No. Um, we had a, a pastor at at Hillsong, New York, who then became the lead pastor of Hillsong, Boston. And he, his, I found him to be incredibly boring, but there was, there was a certain spark to his messages that I was like, maybe there's something there. And then I find out our friend Janice was actually his ghostwriter. Yep. I was going <laughs> to say, I know history. why, so, because yeah. there was a black woman behind it. And mm-hmm. he couldn't deliver it like she would have, because I would write no. some messages from some white men, too. And I remember sitting, I was just talking to my friend about these, and he's like, wait, you wrote messages from some white men? And I was like, yes. And then I would remember sitting them, sitting down, hearing them preach it and be like, you're doing it all wrong. You're you're fucking it up. This is not what I, nope, <laughs> nope. God, I wish I could do this. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Yeah. But yeah, uh, you know, he didn't even, he wasn't even able to give, to make, to do justice to what Janice was writing. Imagine if Janice mm-hmm. would have been able to deliver these messages they would have actually been good messages exactly exactly um so i I find that as as we're sort of like moving into some of these spaces i know i alluded to it a little bit earlier we're moving out of these these evangelical spaces and i mean god knows we could talk ad nauseum and there's probably more for us to even unpack as well as we go on um but i want to take a, a little brief stop you did mention at one point the the work of decolonizing right and mm-hmm. that um you know de- decolonizing the white evangelical spaces is, is already incredibly difficult work made more i think prominent by the fact that even non 
evangelical spaces, these ex-evangelical spaces mm-hmm. um, need decolonizing work. Could, could you actually, um, maybe we should back up and, and talk a little bit about decolonization. What does that look like? What is, how do you, how would you define that? And then maybe how does that play out in an evangelical context and perhaps an ex-evangelical context? Or is it even yeah. the same thing? Yeah. Um, well, decolonizing is a little bit bigger than just religion. Um as is deconstruction, you know, we just tend to take things and make them all about us. But both the deconstruction and decolonizing are terms that are a little bit larger and bigger than just religion. But decolonizing is really about divesting from systems of oppression that have colonized our different identities. So there are all these different identities that we have. And we've been told that those identities are not acceptable or are not um, okay. They are not, uh, they are dangerous or whatever it is. And decolonizing means reclaiming all of these identities of ours as good and reclaiming all of those things as good and actually divesting from systems of oppression that have convinced us that we cannot... that we cannot exist in all of these identities, otherwise we are not found acceptable. Um, and specifically decolonizing faith or decolonizing religion and more particularly decolonizing Christianity is divorcing our, our faith expression, whatever it is, from systems of oppression. And Christianity has been a weapon of oppression since about the fourth century for 1700 years. So thinking about all of the ways in which Christianity has taught us to uh, accept, tolerate, and normalize oppression and how we can divest from all of these ways of existing and create ways of existing where whatever it is that your identity is and whatever it is that your faith expression is and whatever it is that your um, way of existing is, is, is fine so long as you're not harming somebody else. And so we see these in the ways in which Christianity has treated queer people and has treated Jewish people and has treated indigenous people all over the world. And so divesting and that that does not I mean, I have a lot of issues with Christianity, but I also find a lot of beauty in it. And I also find a lot of beauty, more more beauty, really, in Jewish uh, theology. And a lot of Jewish theology has been co-opted and appropriated by Christianity and made into a weapon of oppression so that people think that God wants us to live this way. God wants us to exist in these oppressive ways. God wants women to be subservient to men. And God wants queer people to disappear. And God wants all people to be Christian. And all of those things have been ideologies that have been pushed inside of the West for all of us. Uh, And whether we are Christians or not, whether we are practicing Christianity or not, these realities exist hegemonically all over the West. Everybody thinks that a marriage is a man and a woman and that that's right and that that's good and that that's healthy and that you cannot be happy outside of that paradigm, which is not true. Everybody has been taught that if you have a disability, that, that you're incomplete, that you're not well, that something is wrong with you, that God can heal you. And all of that all of that is not true and it's not really um, how disabled people are experiencing their lives. It's just that they don't have access to health services. That's the problem. And so we can talk about all of the ways in which we've been told like punitive justice is normalized in the West because of Christianity, because we have a, an ideology of a punitive God that required the death of his own son in order to be able to forgive humans for existing, literally. Um <laughs> So we are we all of those things are internalized by our nervous system and normalized as the way that the world should be. And decolonizing is wondering, is this actually the healthiest way of existing? Do we have to have punitive justice? And then we can answer a resounding and loud. No, we don't. Punitive justice is actually not serving any of us. And we can imagine restorative justice and uh, transformative ways of existing with one another. And then we can think about marriage and romantic love in ways that are more expansive than just heterosexual, you know, 
uh, compulsive, compulsive monogamy. And so it can be bigger. It can be better than that. It can actually accommodate the different ways in which we exist. So decolonizing is that intentional work of divesting from oppression and divesting from the ways in which many of our identities have been told to us, uh, the, the, in many of the ways in which we've been told that many of our identities are unacceptable. Um, so that's the work of decolonizing. And that has to happen whether you stay in Christianity or leaving Christianity or ever being a Christian or not being a Christian, decolonizing is a work of people of the West. We live in an era of unprecedented access to information, news, and media. But what happens when all that information leads you to suddenly realize you spent the majority of your childhood in a cult? Well, we can tell you. Join me, Jessica Goforth, and Kathleen Reynolds as we take you into the world of cult recovery after all the emotional, psychological, financial, and sexual abuse we experienced as part of Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute. On our podcast called Leaving the Village, we talk candidly about our journey out and interview other survivors whose experiences will boggle your mind as scandals continue to rock the twisted world of IBLP. Subscribe to Leaving the Village today so you don't miss a single episode. It's, um, it's difficult work. And I think, you know, even, even as I sort of sift through like my own, um, ethnic identity, a lot of that has sort of, like I was just alluding to earlier, a lot of that was sort of forced upon me in different, um, places, different, um, uh, whether it was, you know, because of the church or even just society at large, like my my racial awakening to my identity as an Asian American yeah. was due to the pandemic and then the sort of the the discovery of the Asian American identity for me mm. um, was in, in a way life changing. Like I, I was um, thinking through uh, trying to identify with my uh, my ethnic heritage as a Japanese American, which is challenging because I don't have the connection. Um, you know, I'm, I'm Nisei, which means I'm uh, first generation American, second generation Japanese American. So uh, my dad immigrated here. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't have the connection to the Japanese American history of having been placed into concentration camps um, during World War II. So while I don't have that familial connection to it, it's kind of a part of my ethnic identity, but it's difficult for me to grasp that. But then um, on the other hand, I mm. can't understand the Japanese identity. I, I mm. never lived in Japan. I've only visited to go see family and whatnot. So I, I, I can't pull that in as my identity. So to discover the Asian American identity was, it, it, I felt like I opened up a new aspect of my own personhood. Yeah. And that then prompted further work in discovering and, and awakening to moments in my life where whiteness was placed upon me, whether that was in church or in school or in extracurricular activities and, and even in, in movies. Like I never saw myself represented in the superheroes that I loved as a kid. Right. Um, and I, I remember wanting to be white, wanting to have blue eyes, wanting to look like the characters I was watching on TV. Um, and that's a that's a difficult thing to to acknowledge now because I am proud of, of who I am now. Yeah. But for a long portion of my life, I wasn't proud of that. And that work of even personally on an individual level, um, that work of... of 
decolonization. Um, yeah. Even then, uh, Christianity and, the, and the, the places I grew up in telling me that Pokemon was evil because of its you know roots in these demonic ideologies. And then I discovered that those demonic ideologies, quote unquote, that was those are those are kami in in Shinto. That's a part of my ethnic background. Yeah. That's not you know, a demonic satanic religion. That's, that's how Japan's society functions. Yeah. So it's a, it's a weird thing to, to kind of work through for, for me. And I was, yeah. So, so to hear you talk about that and to listen to you talking about decolonization, um, has really been helpful on my own journey of, of, of discovering myself personally. Because you're this, you're also talking about an extra layer of trauma that we often don't talk about, which is cultural trauma. And religious trauma often imposes cultural trauma on people of the global majority. Um, I was told that my indigenous ancestors, it, that their practices and their ways of being and believing was something that I needed to repent of. Uh, and I was asked to pray. We had these like weekend thingies i don't remember they were called but um you had to participate in them for the weekend and then you had to pray for forgiveness and for like for god to break all of these things off of you and that included indigenous um you know any indigenous practices or any indigenous religions that your ancestors were a part of and that's cultural trauma because the only way that i can explain how it felt it felt like there was something in my dna there was something inside of my body there was something inside of my blood that was actually demonic that was unacceptable that was found um uh, yeah, unacceptable by this God that was the true God. And that is cultural trauma being told that this, I, I can't, I can't divorce myself from my indigeneity. I can't divorce myself from my Colombianness, from my Chipcha, you know, blood. I can't divorce myself from that. That's a part of who I am, just like you cannot divorce yourself from your Japanese heritage. And what people don't realize is that regardless of how distant we are from this heritage of ours, from this ethnicity of ours, the, the reality is that our nervous system carries it <clears throat> so no matter how distant you are from the reality that japanese americans were put in concentration camps during world war ii which is not that long ago the reality is that your ancestors were experiencing that reality and in your nervous system that reality exists the the, the implications of that reality the trauma of that reality has been passed down through your nervous system and so People don't realize that we are actually carrying that inside. And also we are carrying a ridiculous amount of wisdom inside that because Christianity told us that everything that comes from this ethnicity is bad and evil and, um, you know, demonic, we hid all of that wisdom. We didn't explore that wisdom. And now we are doing that, like we're going on that journey of exploring our are the DNA wisdom kind of like this ancestral wisdom that is hidden in our in our nervous system that is hidden inside of our bodies and I sometimes I sit down and I think through things and I think through the ways in which I was taught to relate to the earth I was taught to relate to my grandpa calls the earth mother earth um, in Spanish mm. with a different little bit of words but he he's very respectful of the earth he's very respectful of trees like the, my family has an obsession with trees and with mountains it's it's kind of funny um, but these like we observe trees and we talk to trees and we say good morning to trees and same with mountains we say good morning to mountains and there is this relationship with the earth that I buried when I was inside of white evangelical spaces, but it was a part of me. And every time I was driving around, especially here in California, where there are not a lot of the same mountains as in Colombia, but the mountains are just 
bear and very Southern California is kind of desert, like desertic. And I remember looking at the mountains and they would be red during the sunset. And I would, I would think in my head, good morning or good evening, or look at, look at, look at you, like, look at you receiving the sun right now. And, but I had to hide that part of myself and that connection to the earth, that connection to mountains and trees and all of these things. I can lay underneath a tree and observe its branches move with the earth for hours, like hours and it it soothes me it soothes my nervous system it brings me back home and i removed myself from all of that forcefully because of white evangelical spaces and now i'm reclaiming i've been reclaiming all of that for quite a few years now and it feels like it's just a part it's just so natural like it's like my body knows what to do my body knows how to respond my body knows and i think about this is true for everybody you know i know that a lot of white people are even connecting with all of these different european traditions that were also um, absolutely destroyed and obliterated by christianity and they are reconnecting with them and it's a little bit easier because there is more information about them than there is information of indigenous practices of you know what we call america today or africa but it comes so naturally like it just comes so naturally because it's hidden in your dna so yeah. yeah thank you for sharing that and thank you for sharing even from your indigenous perspective too and and getting in touch with that and and how it hits home i was i was listening to your your live podcast uh, that you were doing you're talking about i mean you're talking about the tweet that got you in trouble I'll get to that in a moment. But you mentioned the adoptive system because that was a part of the tweet that that started a lot of backlash from white evangelicals, of course, because um, you you were addressing the way that they treat people. But um, you mentioned the foster care system, too. And I grew up in foster care. And actually, on our podcast, we stuck to religious abuses as the topic even though marginalization is the direction we wanted to go, we have so much experience with the evangelical movement and that's where we have a lot of experience. But for my story, foster care mm -hmm. system is such a big part of my story because I grew up in foster care and I haven't really touched on it and I've been thinking through it. And uh, I actually, when you're speaking of indigenous people, it ties in because my foster brother, one of them is indigenous and in Canada, I'm from Canada. Um, I live in Canada. Mm -hmm. I'm talking right now from Canada, but uh, in Canada, we genocided our natives through uh, Christian schools. As a whole, like the Christian schools, I mean, we're just finding mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of dead bodies. And they're in the States, too. The Americans just haven't started to dig or even look for it. That's the difference between mm -hmm. between the two. But Canadians are having to reckon with mm -hmm. and having a hard time reckoning with this is our history. And here's all the children that we murdered and in Christian schools. This is the, we, we ripped them from their culture. Their people genocided them. Mm -hmm. And it was the churches running these places. It was it was many different churches. It was Catholic. It was it was progressive United churches. It was across the board. I mean, evangelicalism hadn't picked up at that point, so they would have been. They're like the the next in line. They they came out of that or out of those other traditions. But um, my foster brother was a part of the next phase in how we treated the indigenous. So once we took the cl closed down the residential schools, what they ended up doing in Canada is ripping indigenous kids from their parents by. Um, sticking them in foster homes across the country where they can't see their parents and they still can't like still find a way to pull them away from their culture. I don't think Christians are often ready to accept and to come to terms with like, we're not the good guys in the stories We're we're really we've done a lot of damage. We've done a lot of harm. We've we've put no. a lot of really gross stuff into the people around us. And I don't know if, if, if it is a good place to transition to this or not, but I was wondering the tweet that has uprooted your life right now in a lot of sense, that's needing you to leave yeah. the country so you can breathe, that's needing you to maybe think of changing your kids' schools. That's like, it's your life has been just pushed into chaos 
um, with death threats and everything. And yeah. it's because you challenged how white evangelicals and this whole concept of adoption and white event. Do you care to talk about your tweet that would you mind getting into that? Yeah. Yeah. So I've I've been listening to adoptees for a very long time and I've been um, learning from adoptees and trying to understand the adopted experience uh, for a very long time. And every time I've said anything about adoption uh, publicly, <clears throat> I've gotten a lot of pushback and I've gotten a lot of like just violence, especially from white adopted par adoptive parents. Um, and so I was thinking about that and I wanted to invite someone to my I wanted to invite adoptees to my podcast. And I was talking to some of them and I was like, yeah, let's come to my podcast. Let's have that conversation. And I was showering. I wasn't having the conversation and showering, but I was having the conversations and then another time I was showering. And while I was showering, I was thinking I would rather, because this was happening while there are conversations about the Supreme Court here in the United States, the Supreme Court is trying to over overturn uh, Roe v. Wade and take away abortion rights for a lot of women in different states in the United States. A lot of people, excuse me, a lot of people in the United States. And so I was thinking through that. And every time I talk to evangelicals about abortion, what they tell me, is well why would you abort like just simply give give the babies to us we'll take the babies which first is not true and second that is not an alternative for a lot of us it's especially not an alternative for people of color because and this was my tweet i would rather get an abortion and never get to see my child and never get to see my brown child than actually give my child up to adoption for a white evangelical family that is going to subject my child to a ridiculous amount of of, of trauma cultural trauma physical trauma psychological trauma religious trauma i was not going to have it. Like, no, I'd rather my child never exist. I'd rather my child just never exist. And evangelicals hmm. didn't like that. And they started talking about how I wanted to murder babies instead of give them to white evangelicals, which is a, a gross misrepresentation of what abortion actually exactly. is. And it's also a gross misrepresentation of what I said. This was a hypothetical. I wasn't going to go and kill babies. That's not at all what I was intending to do. I was just saying I would rather get an abortion, which happens to be legal in the state of California where I live. And also one out of every four women get abortion. So it's not something that is not happening. It's happening all over the nation. They just want to pretend that it's not and they want to call us murderers because they don't want to grapple with the reality of what it is because it's easier for them to rally around the issue of abortion than it is for them to rally around the real issues that they want to rally around, which is homophobia and racism and all types of bigotry, because really that's what it is. They just use abortion as that. So... These like I just put a mirror up to them, you know, like if a brown woman looks at you and says, I would rather get an abortion than have you be around my child. That should cause for you to think through why that what the hell did I do yeah. for you not to want to have my child around you? Because, listen, I don't want my children to even go to evangelical churches like I don't feel safe with them at evangelical churches. It's not. In fact, it's proven that it's not safe for them to be in evangelical churches. The amount of sexual abuse, the amount of psychological abuse, the amount of emotional abuse that happens in these churches is not something that I need to subject my children to. And instead of taking the opportunity to wonder why would someone rather get an abortion than give me their child, they decided to say, well, she's a witch. We hate her and we are going to destroy her life and we are going to demand that all of these things happen to her. Um, and so I lost uh, some of the places where I was. I was a board member at my children's school and they asked me to resign because then it became a safety concern for the school because of the death threats that I was getting from white supremacists. And then there were some 
organizations that are Christian organizations that work with um, um, musicians and they wanted to learn and they wanted to hire me as a consultant and they were like, no, thanks, not anymore. Um, and so all of these things started to unravel and happen, which affected me financially and which affected me psychologically and emotionally, only because white evangelicals have an inability to look at themselves in a mirror and say, why don't people like us? Because see, there is a reason people don't like you. Usually people don't like you because you have done something to them. It's not because people are being arbitrarily mean. It's not because they are bitter or because they haven't forgiven or because of none of that. It's because you have done something to them that hurts so much that they don't want to be around you anymore. And anybody that has an inch of empathy, anybody that has an inch of emotional fitness, anybody that has done any work on trauma uh, would recognize that and say, tell me how I can make this better. Tell me how I can actually understand where you're coming from. But instead, they double down, triple down, quadruple down and prove right? our point over and yeah. over and over again. Yeah. And I said, I don't want to give you my children now because of that. Exactly. Right. The, and then they're going to my children's I, safety, want my children to I'm leave sorry the school. for laughing, but it's, my children it's, are children. It's so they absurd. Have, it's, it is it's kind ridiculous of funny because they're trying because to say so that your yes. statement doesn't make sense yes. and that you're the one out of line. And then here they are proving your exact point <laughs> that they are not safe people. <laughs> they are yep. literally... They sent me pictures of my children and said, you're soon going to hold their dead bodies because of what you said. And I'm like, and you want me to give you my children? You want me to like, why would anybody want their children around you if this is how you respond to a tweet and it wasn't and one I saw, it, was it was like a picture of my onslaught. baby the youngest like it's not like oh here's one event people like to say yeah but they're not all like that but like this was a no, mass it was yes this hundreds. was a, a huge response it was yeah. hundreds on all social yeah. medias hundreds and there were also some like evangelicals of color that jumped into which mm-hmm. was fun uh, which proves that whiteness is so, you know, insidious. Yeah, because yeah, it finds so its way into um, those of us who aren't white. Um, yeah. I mean. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I had I had evangelicals of color being like, how dare you? And I'm like, I wasn't talking about yeah. you. Why are you offended? Yeah. Like I said, specifically white evangelicals, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. Like, I'll give them to you. I won't, but let's pretend <laughs> I will. Like I said, white evangelicals, what's your problem? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, but the thing is, they keep proving our point. And instead of having the ability of, of self, um, you know, self, self, what Awareness. is that word? Reflection? Self, yeah, self-awareness. Instead of wanting to have self-awareness of have some sort of introspection, they just go in and attack the people that are saying, would you have some self-awareness? Like you're hurting me. And it's literally the way I put it is like, these people like to slap us. And then we go like, hey, I'm going to move myself away from you because you slap me. And they go, you suck. How dare you? You should let me slap you. No, no, I shouldn't. And the fact that you are responding this way and demanding that I let you slap me over and over and over again proves to me that I cannot be around you again um so yeah it's just this inability and i have a friend her name is ro or their name excuse me their name is ro goodwin and they said when you have no need of self-awareness because the world has not been telling you for always that you are unacceptable and wrong and disgusting and not appropriate then you don't Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You don't go for self-awareness. And white evangelicals have been told that they are the epitome of goodness, that they are the epitome of, of perfection, that they are the epitome of supremacy. So they don't have a need of self-awareness. Yeah. While the rest of us, women of color, people of color, disabled people, women in general, we've had to actually work on self-awareness because we have to fight against the narratives that they've been given us. Because they tell me I have to be quiet, subservient. I have to be a servant to all. They tell me that I shouldn't be centered in conversations. They tell me that I have no wisdom and I have to actually dig within and look for self-awareness and be like, actually, I have been gifted by divinity or whatever with these incredible ideas and these incredible ways of being. And I will expand and I will take up space and I don't need to behave like you. And my hair is going to be curly. And like, I like to call it messy because I think messy is fun and my hair will be curly and messy and big and wild because it's supposed to be that way. And I will be a warrior because that's where I come from. And I will be loud in my five, two body, a hundred and 10 pound frame. And there's nothing you can do about it because that's who I am. And that's who I am because I had to actually fight for my self-awareness because I don't fit into the boxes that you demanded that I fit into. But when you're a white evangelical, especially a man, a man, a heterosexual white evangelical, cisgender, the world says Mm -hmm. that you're perfect. You're just amazing. You're celebrated for existing. So you have no need of self-awareness. So when somebody says you're hurting me, they go, impossible. I'm perfect. And that hurts them more than anybody else because they stay immature. They stay unable to show empathy. There are actual studies from Harvard University that show that most people that are uh, white, especially white Christians, have less empathy than other people, show less empathy. Their brain like turns on less empathy than other people groups. Mm. So it's, this is actually like they are the most oppressed internally than the rest of us, even if, if externally they are the I least wonder, oppressed. I'm not, I don't know the neuroscience, so I'm just, just me shooting in the dark, but like empathy, I wonder if it's like other things in your brain where it's practice, right? Like if the more you don't use empathy, the more those pathways in your brain are just not connecting yeah. and the, like you lose what you're not using, right? So like I wonder, yeah. you know, how much the evangelical experience yeah. trains. I've been having this theory that it trains empathy out of people for a while. Like I remember seeing like the Gospel Coalition write about it was like trying to do like, um, uh, you know, those de- the demons talking. There's what is the C.S. Lewis screw tape letters. They are trying to like do yeah. the voice yes. of the devil and they were making their yes. own. And the bad, the devil character in their little script was like talking about how empathy is going to be the tool that they're going to use. And I was like, wait, they're trying to say the devil uses empathy. Yes. And like the whole gist of it was like, be careful. You could be too loving. You can be too caring. That's how the enemy is going to get you. And I was like, I've been feeling this in these spaces. I've been feeling this. Don't trust your heart. Don't listen to your heart so like if they're telling you how to treat queer people and it's not right if the way they're treating women like you know some of these whether it's patriarchy or whether it's racism these systems exist in and out of the church but i don't experience patriarchy the same way in the world that i have like in the church it was so much more intensified and a level Mm -hmm. i haven't experienced outside the church Mm -hmm. but like how to just dismiss that and throw that off in the church i feel like so many of the things that felt wrong and that looked wrong and that didn't make sense because when you stepped out of the church, they treated people better than that. Like just yeah. killing your empathy seemed almost like a way yeah. to, to to make that work, to not feel bad if queer people are left out, if you're yeah. kicking them out of it, like that t- toning it down. And I almost wonder if the abortion topic becomes the way to prove to the world, look, we do care. Look, we're empathetic. We care. Like, we care. We're, see, how can yeah. we not be empathetic? We're going for the most vulnerable possible. So like all the rest of the categories of people that we've shoved aside, even right. babies after they're born, moms wanting to get formula and the government not even wanting to like people 
senators voting against Republican senators voting against being able to get baby formula to moms whose babies are starving to death. And then Mm -hmm. all of these men. Yeah. And all of these men being like, just breastfeed. And I'm like, shut up. How can you You don't know what you're talking about? It's not that simple. Like don't, some people can't yeah. breastfeed. Some people cannot breastfeed. And so, yeah, but it's exactly how that mm-hmm. works. The more that you show empathy, the more that you actually, um, that's why black people say that they don't. And I, I obviously agree with them. It's not good when you share videos of black people being yeah. to, like, you know, brutalized of black people being harmed because our brain sends like it starts desensitizing toward those things. Our brain is like, oh yeah, they get hurt all the time. Whatever. No big deal. It is a big deal. It is a huge mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. It is a big, big problem. The reason why we respond to school shootings in North, um, in, in the United States specifically, uh, in the ways that we do is because every time they happen, we are like, well, what do we do? Let's keep moving. Yeah. There is no accountability. There is no change. So our brain starts rewiring and starts being like, yeah, that's just the yeah. way it is. And so neuroscience plays a big role in the ways in which we perpetuate. Mm-hmm. And I tweeted today something about that and how Christians, white Christians specifically, and this was in regards to January 6th, but it applies to more white Christians specifically have literally enslaved people think think like sit for a minute they enslaved people for hundreds of years all over the world enslaved people they murdered indigenous people genocide full-on genocide without a reason just because they were indigenous they took kids away from Jew, uh, from Jewish people and have been taking kids away from Jewish people for 1700 years. Um, if you didn't know that there are entire stories about how they would baptize them against their will because they were babies and then take them away from their Jewish family and kick the Jewish family out of the countries. Mm-hmm. They have been murdering Muslim people. They have been committing horrific crimes against humanity for 1700 years and there is no accountability. And when there is no accountability, something happens in your brain that tells you that you are justified in doing what you're doing. And Having no accountability for people, which is what's happening with January 6th so far, means that you are investing in the future of oppression because you embolden it. Because you say it's fine. You can do whatever you want. You embolden it. And the generations that come after them are also getting nervous system messages that say you're never going to be held accountable. You can do whatever you want. The Chapel Probation Podcast takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities focusing initially on Azusa Pacific University, where I taught English for 15 years. I'm Scott Okamoto, and I'm writing a book about how I deconstructed from faith completely while at APU. This podcast, though, is my tribute to the students and other faculty who survived evangelical higher education. They faced ridiculous racism, sexism, anti-LGBTQ hatred, and all manner of bigotry. From the heartless evils of the prosperity gospel to the destructive pseudo-theology of purity culture, the stories will break your heart, but they will also inspire. These people faced bigotry and fought back. In a weird, kind of sick way, we went through some sh**, but we formed identities and we formed communities through it all. I hope you will join us. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a quick break from the conversation to let you know that we have a fantastic new way for you to support the podcast. If you like what you hear from our show and want to partner with us, head over to patreon.com slash fullmutuality to donate. As a partner, you'll get exclusive content, access to occasional live recording events, and more for as little as $5 a month. 
Thank you already for your support of what we're creating. And now back to the conversation. That's why accountability matters so much. People are like, knock it off with the accountability. No, accountability is very important because you need to teach. I was talking to the school and I was, we were asking them to change some of the disciplinary policies. And they were like, we just don't want to change in regards to racism. We were like, racism should not be tolerated. And they were like, we just don't want to shame children that are, um, you know, that do something like that without knowing. And he's like, no, it's not about shaming. It's about teaching them that when they experience shame, it's good. Then when they are racist, they mm-hmm. should feel shame. But if you avoid that shame for them, if you shield them from that shame, they learn to not feel shame anymore when they are racist. They, they learn to be proud of that. So accountability at the, at the child level is so important because your brain learns from accountability. Your, your brain learns what you should feel s- grief about and what you should not care about. Your brain actually learns. Yeah. Um, and so... That even thinking about hunting and the ways in which white people hunt versus the ways in which indigenous people hunt and how there is no respect for the bodies of of, uh, animals in many of the ways in which white people hunt. And that causes them to actually disconnect from the 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 actually life that they are taking uh, while indigenous people honor the life that they are taking in many different ways. And it's, it's very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we have the food that we have now in the United States, because it's, it's a business. They don't care about the body. They don't care. And when bodies die in a very traumatic way, which is the way in which animals die in the slaughterhouses, they release a whole bunch of different chemicals into all of their body. And we are eating all of those chemicals. And indigenous people don't kill like that. Indigenous people kill in peaceful ways because they understand all of these ways in which we are interconnected. We should not be eating all of those chemicals of stress and anxiety and pain that all of these animals are feeling. We we are eating them. Mm -hmm. The neurobiology of oppression is very important to understand. And white evangelicals play into the neurobiology of oppression by refusing to hold accountable the most powerful among the most powerful amongst them. Um, Real quick, as an aside. Um, even even the 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 um, food preparation practices of other other religious um, cultures like uh, halal practices, mm-hmm. um, kosher practices, mm-hmm. um, even mm-hmm. I think even of um, how Shinto um, influences the way that Japanese people prepare their food, recognizing. Yeah. Um, kami in everything, right? Kami being the, the Japanese word for spirit or God and that every item that you are partaking of has it, it has kami. And um, mm-hmm. one thing that I, that I always find beautiful is the, the Japanese uh, itadakimasu before you eat. Um, whether you're saying that you're acknowledging, if you're saying that to the chef, you're acknowledging uh, the skill of the chef. If you're saying that and you're, you're by yourself and, the, and you're not sitting in front of the chef, you're, you're speaking to the food, the spirit, the kami in the, the animal that has died to provide you this food or the, the life force in the plant that is providing you this food. And that's just like from what I know. I know I I, I glossed over halal and, and kosher yeah. uh, because I'm not familiar with those cultures. But but being Japanese, um, I find that beautiful, and that's part of why I want to dig into my own um, ethnicity because of those sorts of things yeah. of of that interplay that that non-white Christian cultures have with the world, but our white Christian heritage does have that history. I mean, even as obvious as the Crusades of just bulldozing over entire cultures. I mean, you could go even yeah. more recent. I mean, to me, it's mind blowing that our biggest, I mean, evangelicals like to imagine because we're talking about evangelicalism, you know, for a lot of this conversation, but imagine themselves as the good guys in the story. 
I don't think most, it took me a long time to realize the largest evangelical denominations, Southern Baptists, were created as a denomination because they wanted to keep slaves. Like that was their prime, they were in support of yeah. slavery and they were, and I think like Christians and evangelicals absolutely need to grab onto this. They were using the Bible to do that. They were taking verses that are much more explicit to try and support mm -hmm. their position that then evangelicals are currently trying to use to oppress all kinds of other groups. Yeah. They had bigger yeah. passages in favor to be like, slaves submit to your masters, as, and, and they were pulling stuff and probably out of context as they as they tend to do. Learning context is not part of, learning the traditions and <laughs> history is, is not part yeah. of evangelical um, teachings. And we don't have to go that far. Uh, John MacArthur still yes. does that. Yes. Oh, yeah, he does. John MacArthur has a giant church here in California. He's a very influential pastor and he still believes that slavery is he justified. He talks about it like being like, you know, not all marriages are bad. If you saw, saw abuse in a marriage, and, it, yeah. and that, would you say all marriages are bad? So not all slavery is bad. Like he makes very blatant. I mean, he even mm -hmm. he even reinterprets uh, and a lot of evangelicals do this, the Noah's Ark story to then go to the sons of Noah to try and say one race came from Noah oh, that's yeah. a black the, the, race the curse of the, the, curse of Ham. the sons then, of the sons of Ham then, yeah, that the they use that yeah. in a lot of white evangelicalism as their excuse to say racism and slavery is god ordained like the idea that suffering is you know you i i my head always jumps all over the place with Nate and I want to go into so many places and I feel like this is a good ramp to it but you have a book in the works that sort of touches a bit yes. on this. And I'm really excited. It's your first book. Am I correct? It is my first and book. And yeah. what is the theme and title? Because I feel like it does tie into this idea of a God so the name of that the encourages book. suffering and oppression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The name of the book is Predatory God. Hmm. And it's exactly what we're talking about here, right? Using God and this Christian God and these Christian theologies and ideologies in order to be able to justify oppression, oppression against women, oppression against people. And it's it's uh, one of the first ideas that I, I explore in the book is the idea of salvation, um, the idea that we all need to be saved from hell, that we all are inherently uh, already cursed, that all of us are going to go to hell no matter what. And there is a solution to all of these. And the solution is to be a Christian like they tell us to be a Christian, because then you accept that your identity is that of a sinner, that your identity is that of a cursed person, that your identity is that of filthy, worse, you know, filthy rags, the worst of the worst, and that God cannot even look at you unless he can look at you through the eyes of Jesus and Jesus's sacrifice. That in itself is predatory. It's grooming theology, and it's grooming us to tolerate and accept being treated as less than, being treated as inferior, being treated as gross and disgusting, and all of these things which we are are absolutely not. And then I go into the theology of suffering and I go into purity culture and I go into all of these different theologies that have actually taught us all to tolerate and accept abuse and how these are grooming theologies. They are ways of grooming people into accepting abuse and calling it good. And the harm in that is just incredibly, like, I don't think people even recognize the harm in that. And I go into the historical um, aspects of each one of these theologies, punitive justice justice being a big one. Punitive justice begins with actually ideas that um, Augustine, which is perhaps my least favorite theologian in history, <laughs> 
and it starts with ideas of Augustine and Augustine talking about just war theory and talking about how there are certain ways in which a war and murder is justified if all of these things. And then Thomas Aquinas, then a few years later, a few centuries later, not a few years, a few centuries later, Thomas Aquinas come in the, comes in the scene and actually gives a list of things. If these four things are happening, then we're justified in murdering and we're justified in becoming the oppressor and we're justified in doing all of these things. And we're talking about then crusaders that are wearing crosses on their chest and proudly murdering people in the name of God and calling it good. Yeah. And we learn to call good people like good things bad and bad things good. And I was talking to someone about dolphins. This is going to sound like it's not related at all, but I promise <laughs> it is. It's what I so I was talking about dolphins and sharks and how we have been all conditioned to believe that dolphins are terrible. And, uh, dolphins are beautiful, sweet, wonderful animals because they go <laughs> and they come and say hi and they like, <sighs> like literally hump our legs because they are super horny animals. And we've been told that sharks are really awful animals because they eat humans, which they eat like five humans a year. Right. Um, yeah. And there have only these movies about sharks where sharks are just the worst and we have to be so scared of them. And we have been conditioned to believe that sharks are bad and sharks are actually incredible animals that are necessary for our mm -hmm. ecosystem. They actually function really well in the ecosystem. They are beautiful animals, incredibly smart, incredibly wise, incredibly important for the ecosystem. And dolphins are not great. Dolphins tend to gang rape. Did you know that? I actually they did gang read rape. that. So they are... Uh, it's mm -hmm. terrible. So a group of dolphins will like surround one dolphin and then they'll like abuse this dolphin sexually. Mm -hmm. And they are super horny animals. They are one of the only animals that have sex for pleasure and not procreate only. Uh, and I hate them with a passion. <laughs> I hate dolphins. And what happens with dolphins and sharks is exactly the same thing that happens with Christians and non-Christians. Everybody has been told that Christians are just so good and are so magnificent. And we have been conditioned to actually believe this narrative that Christians are good. And Christians walk into the world and they're like, I'm the good person here because I am a Christian. No evidence of it, nothing at all. And they actually abuse and gang rape and, mal and mistreat people. And there are people that have left churches with actual physical scars and with emotional and psychological scars. There are a ridiculous amount of LGBTQ people that have actually ended their lives because of white evangelicals. And then outside of that, they, we have Satanists and atheists and Muslims and you know, Jewish people that are completely different mm -hmm. and that are the sharks of the world, mm -hmm. that we are told they are dangerous and they are bad. And instead they are creating and queer people, you know, like all these queer people that are creating inclusive, beautiful, incredible communities. But we were told they were sharks yep. and we have to be scared of them. And in reality, they are maintaining yep. ecosystems and they are protecting mm -hmm. people. Yeah. And so it's the same thing. My book goes into what are the things that we've been told are sharks, but are really dolphins? And what are the things that are dolphins and we've been told are sharks? And, you know, uh, so that's what the book is all about. Just exploring all of that and exploring ways in which we can have freedom from all of these things, in which we can um, stop being groomed into accepting and tolerating ways of existing that are not good for any of us. And in which we can be we just absolutely yeah. liberated to yeah. be, to just yeah. be ourselves. I, I as a pessimistic person, I, I'm wondering I'm wondering if your book is um, going to be helpful to people like me who feels a little discouraged. Like it's like I see you out there trying to have these discussions and I have them because I can't shut my mouth. I feel like if I like I don't like it's I feel like I'm doing damage to myself when I don't speak about this because it just it stays in me. Like it's a way to be like, yeah. I, I need to speak. But I don't always have hope that there's like I don't do it necessarily because I imagine I'm going to change the world. It's more like, well, 
if I don't like when I was in a situation that was bad, I needed to see other people speaking. So maybe I can't change the world, but maybe one other person yeah. can see someone standing up for their humanity. And and that could be just a small, tiny, anything, anything. I don't really like at this point, just I'm yeah. talking. But I see in you a, a hopefulness, even in your podcast intro, like a vision of, of have, bringing heaven on earth. And I'm just like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know if we can convince people to be better humans. Like I look at just when we're talking about the gun situation, right? I'm a Canadian. So I watch the school shootings in the US. I watch the mass shootings and I'm just like, guys, like there's another way to, this doesn't have to be normal. Owning a gun is not worth sacrificing all of your elementary, like a class of elementary school kids for. It's not worth this. Other countries do it differently and, and it works. Like it actually, you know, gun control actually works. Not having everyone armed actually makes a difference in not having to sacrifice your, like, why are you being, you know, anti-abortion and you don't even want to save your elementary? I don't like as a Canadian, I'm just like, wow. But a part of me is like, how do I, when I have conversations with people, they don't get it. It's like, they've been so conditioned to see this as normal. And as this is how things are. And like you were saying, like your brain kind of gets wired into this pattern of thinking. I want to know what gives you hope, Joe. I want to know how you stay, (laughs) how you stay hopeful, what you've seen that makes you go, yeah, this, this is, this is why I actually have hope for people. Like I see the arguments people get into. I've seen the damage done to you directly. And I'm like, if you're still thinking there's hope for humanity, I want to know what, what's keeping you. Yeah. Motivated. Um, it depends on the day that you ask me, Gail. <laughs> there are days that I'm like, fuck it all. Like, let's burn this place down. Let's just like wrap it up. Can somebody throw a rock, giant rock against the earth? Let's like kind of black hole, like consume us. It's time. It's over. It's just like we're done. So there are days that I feel that way for sure. And then there are days that I see my kids and I talk to them. And there are days I remember the ways in which I have changed. Um, the things in which... You know, the, the, the ways in which my brain has rewired the things that I've unearthed inside of me. The, the, the woman that I was 10 years ago even would look at me and be like, who are you and what did you do with her? Um, so I see that it is actually possible. And then I see all the people that I talk to that tell me I've changed so much. I've done better. And then I see people that I have. My, I went to Portland, like I said, and I saw Scott and I spent a lot of time with my friend Ashley because we were staying in the same Airbnb. And Ashley and I had just the best conversations and, and we had so much fun. We just had so much fun and it felt like heaven. You know, it felt like that weekend. I needed it. I heard that that conference you guys had out there and, and it was on decolonization yeah. and on de- deconstruction. It was so good. And that's what I heard. I heard there was it no was white so men good. speaking at this conference that they, no, that they were what? present, but that no, they sat their butts none. down and allowed other people to be taking the, yeah. the lead on that. Centered. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and then I see that, you know, we had an entire room of men and women uh, that were white and they were sitting down and listening to all of these women of color that were struggling. And I sat down with Tori Glass at dinner the next day and we had these conversations where we imagined a better world, where we imagined together what it meant to reconnect with my with with her ancestors and mine. And it's so funny because she is a black American and she was like, yeah, I'm reconnecting to the Mexican part of me. And I was like, I didn't know you had Mexican in here. And she was like, yeah, I traveled there and all of these things. And then I said, yeah, I'm reconnecting with the Jewish parts of me. And it's like, I didn't know you had Jewish in you. And I was like, me there. I learned that recently. And, but I feel the Jewish, um, 
my Jewish heritage pulling on me and and it's in my indigenous heritage and all of those can coexist together. And and so I see all of us just pulling for a better world. And whether I have hope or not, it doesn't matter because I have descendants, you know, and I don't mean that biologically only, though I do have four, four biological children, which what the fuck, it's a lot of children. But, <laughs> but even if I didn't, but even if I didn't, our descendants are the people that we leave behind. And because we are here and we were brought into this place without our consent and there's nothing we can do about it, I might as well just work for a better place, you know? And I, I shared at the live earlier today that I made a podcast with my kids and I asked, um, I have a daughter, she's she's shared with me that she has crushes on girls and we this is very normal in my family, it's not a big deal, but she, I asked her what's normal and she said, nothing, everything. Normal doesn't really mean anything. Mm. And, you know, and this is normal for her. It's normal for her to just reimagine normal. And I said, and what's weird? And she was like, all of us, every one of us is weird. That's what we are. We're weird. I and I asked my nine-year-old, who's like a super girly girl and like all about fashion. I said, what are inappropriate clothes? And she said, clothes that you don't want to wear. Hmm. <laughs> and... And my kids are thinking differently, you know, and I ask my six-year-old son, what's consent? And he knows what consent is. And I tell him no is a full answer. And he understands that when people say no, no is a full answer. And demanding people to change their no is coercive, abusive, and inappropriate. And I'm talking about a boy that's like white passing that understands that at six years old. And that gives me hope, yeah. you know, that gives me a lot of hope because he's going to be a very different boy in the world. And, he, and my girls are going to be different girls girls in the world. And my three-year-old has been raised inside of a home where she's absolutely free to be who she is. She has not been uh, pushed into boxes at all. And the way in which this little girl exists in the world with so much freedom and so much confidence. And then I imagine what if all these children had that from the get-go, you know, and they could exist in the world and not have to fight. And I believe that especially my, my youngest, because of, you know, how much I've changed and because she came into the world when I had changed a lot already. Um, I think she's going to have secure attachment. If anybody's familiar with attachment theory, you can have secure attachment or um, avoidant attachment or anxious attachment yeah. or ambivalent, like all of these things. And people that have secure attachment have healthy relationships as adults. And I think my daughter, especially, I think all of them will, but especially my three-year-old, will have secure attachments. And that creates a different kind of adult. That creates a different kind of society. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, and yet there are all of these children that are being raised with anxious attachment and with avoidant attachments and with a lot of trauma. And we're going to continue to create safer and safer spaces for them. And we are going to continue to create better and better tools for them to acquire, perhaps when they leave their homes and they are adults. Um, but that gives me hope to see that we've actually moved forward. And to, right now in history is the first, like this is the time in history where less people die of violence than ever before. And also the time in history where there are more enslaved people than ever before. So I dance between like, we're doing better and we are not. And let's like have the black hole consume us, but also let's keep doing the work. So I just dance amongst all of that. And it's just a mess in my head. And then I take an edible and go to bed. <laughs> It works. It's, hey, it's fine. It works it's fine. for it's fine. me. It's fine. It works for me. Although I don't have edible. Yes. Yeah. I just pull out the vape pen and, you know, same same deal. Same effect. Uh, that works got, for me I too. I got the oil that yeah. you drop under your tongue. Amazing painkiller. I've never done that, but I'll try that. Just FYI, for anyone, for anyone who's listening, all three of us are in states or provinces or countries, countries. where this is legal. legal. 
none of us are in any places yeah. where we're not allowed to do this. So if you live in a state where you're not allowed to do this, I'm so, so sorry. Um, come move to one of our places. Send uh, us your address. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like we're, we're coming to a close in the conversation, though. I, I know we probably would have way more. There's so many things I'd love to chat with you about, but I plan to listen to your podcast and catch myself up on some of it. I've started listening to Joe's story, what you're talking about your story and talking about how I think your story is really unique because I was trying to figure out how did you get all this wisdom? How did you get this perspective? I feel like when you grow up in evangelicalism, you're fed a certain narrative. And when you get out of it or when you start to learn one piece is not true, it's a little unsettling because you're like, well, this is what everyone has been teaching me. And it seems like from your story, you had a lot of teaching outside of out of the USA, outside of American evangelicalism. Yeah. So you already had so many different angles of which to understand and interpret scripture that were outside of that. So it probably gave you an edge on, I, I just, it's a, a lot, listening to your story and hearing made a lot of sense to me on how you were able to piece things together. Mm. But I plan I to- I also listen. disintegrate into a five. Oh. Uh, for people that are familiar with the, the Enneagram, Enneagram, I disintegrate into a five. So when I am Enneagram, uh, when I am not okay, like when I'm not safe, I go into a five and fives like to do research and understand things. And so too. I am a voracious reader and I'm like, I need to understand everything. Yeah. And so I get super, I'm so intense, so intense. It's actually kind of annoying, <laughs> like so intense. And I have to, like, I got super obsessed with cosmology and for like a year, I was like, I need to understand everything about cosmology. I need to make sense of it all. And so I, like, I get like nervous system too. I was like, I need to understand everything about the nervous system. I think I read like 15 books on the nervous system in like a year. And I was like, I need to know it all. So when I am not feeling well, I disintegrate into a five, which kind of works in my advantage, kind of, hmm. kind of, because it also gets I, a little intense. It might be an eight thing, right? Eights all, do they all disintegrate? It's also an eight thing. Yeah. Because like, and I was saying- I think that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Because I said to Nate, like- Yeah, we do. We tend to. He tends to, uh, we, we're both ADHD and he does this thing where he goes um, into hyper-focus and he'll like just study it and study and study on whatever he's into. And I'm like, oh, Nate, I don't do that. And he's like, cause I'm like, we're both ADHD, but I don't do that. He goes, yeah, you do when you're stressed out. That's what you do. He's like, when the Canadian convoy thing was happening, like we did, I did a whole podcast with a, with a, with a journalist friend of mine from Canada. And like, I was just studying and researching and research and I couldn't let myself yeah. off of the news. And he's like, yeah, you do, you hyper-focus when you're stressed. That's when you, when yeah. you really do go the down the thing. road. It's like the, and it's also a trauma response, right? Mm. It's this trauma response that we probably all have that he's like, I need to understand everything because they lied to me for so mm -hmm. long that now I need to know the truth. And so it's, it's a trauma oh response, too, but it kind of works when, in our favor. Let's call it yeah, good. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's produced some good. When I first found yeah. out that my high school curriculum and my college curriculum, world history, everything lied to me about why the South seceded from the Union. And when I went... Well, you were going to school in the South, right? Or when... Well, I, I mean, even before then... Um, in New Jersey, too. Yeah, because we used yeah. curriculum from the South. So I, I went and I read all of the... Um, Letters uh, of Succession? state's article of okay. secession. Um, <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. The, yeah. These guys, that's why they That's why they wanted to leave. They put it in yeah. there. I mean, they said it straight yeah. up. They, yeah. they weren't hiding so it. So I, I, uh, I read anything and everything I could. 
Um, That's what happened with me and Judaism. <laughs> when I found out that the Messiah was not supposed to be God, because I didn't mm, know, you right. know, they tell us that Jesus is supposed to be like, was a God. And then yes. I found out that in Judaism, the Messiah is not God. The Messiah is just a, a person or a group of people mm. or a reality. I was like, what the actual fuck? And then I started yeah. researching and I was like, I need to know everything about these, like everything like about these. So and much of Christianity is especially evangelical Christianity, I'm not good at speaking outside of what I know, but like it's, there's so much presentation of the Jewish texts and scriptures that are so anti-Semitic and so like the stories that, I, mm -hmm. that I've read and the ways it's been represented to me, it's like the God of the New Testament is grace and love and good. Oh, the God of the Old Testament, bad, evil. And even the way they tell those stories are yeah. not how Jewish people interpret those stories at all. And they are anti-Semitic, Benz. I know yeah. you did an episode I yeah. haven't listened to yet on this topic, so I'm going to probably be checking mm -hmm. that one yeah. out. But it is Oh, that was good. That was that was the one where um, it, it it dawned on me as I was listening to to that conversation um, that the 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 um, well, the Christian Old Testament or First Testament um, and the um, the Tanakh are not the same things. They are, which is why when when Christians are like, "Well, how come you don't see Jesus in your text? All the prophecies are there." It's not the same book. Or because you changed it. <laughs> you changed it all. You made and you it. read it Jesus. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You read it wrong. Exactly. You changed it all. You translated it wrong. Uh, I don't know if people know these, but Augustine didn't speak Greek. No, no, he did not. Um, so Augustine had a lot of, yeah, he didn't speak mm. Greek or Hebrew. So Augustine actually would interpret things in the Latin translation of what he was getting. And he would interpret it wrong because it was already interpreted mm -hmm. wrong in the Latin. So I don't know why we trust Augustine at all, because Augustine couldn't even read Hebrew or Greek at all. And, it, and, and this man was in Latin putting things together and misrepresenting a lot of the scriptures a lot and yet so many of our churches based oh, their theology so augustinian on, on what he yeah. yeah and when we say these things people are like well it's been two thousand years why haven't it, why hasn't it well over 1700 1500 whatever why hasn't people picked up on it and i was like because the church actually had hegemony and they didn't let anybody read the books yeah. they didn't let access to the books we didn't have access to the books yeah yeah and not to mention the fact that that um what augustine was writing was feeding into the power of you know the the imperial christianity there's a reason why power the powerful empires latched yeah. on to christianity and yeah. like ran with whatever narratives yeah. that could that could support them i think mm -hmm. for me like realizing that like jews don't believe most jews don't believe in hell and that's not in their like when nate right. was talking to me about hell and and this was like one of maybe i'd been out of church started deconstructing stuff more a little more once i had backed out of church uh evangelical church and then I was like, what do you mean? And he's like taking me through all the passages that we say have the word hell and going into the root words. And it's like, none of these are nope. hell. And I'm like, nope. but that's what the whole thing is based. Like, that's what we, we need to save people. That's why nothing else matters. That's why yep. we can, we can, we can, we can condemn gay people. We can treat women. We could do everything. We could, you know, just colonize because at the end of the day, saving people to go to heaven is the end goal. Like it's in the forefront of your mind is the justification. I mean, I remember people saying like, what's, what's the point in, in this when it's eternity that we need to focus on? Like this life is so short. Yeah. It's like a vapor according to scripture. Like you need to, and then to realize what, what, like, I don't know. Did you have those moments where you started pulling apart one doctrine and All were just time. shocked at how everything was just tied into BS? <laughs> like All the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, when I started studying virginity and marriage, I was so angry. 
Mm. I was like, are you serious? You liars, liars, liars. Because marriage as a romantic endeavor did not exist so until new. Victorian times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very so new. Yeah. Very new. 1800s, yeah. 1700s. Yeah. And so uh, before that, everybody knew that marriage was just a business transaction between two men where some of the things that were being transacted were women. We were the um, property. That's and it. And that's, yeah. Women, yeah. women and property. Yeah, that's what they, what, women, property and slaves. <laughs> and yeah. so that's what was being trans like that's the transaction uh but romantic love didn't exist until the victorian era and even then it was a very different idea of what we have today and and then virginity is the same thing like virginity mm-hmm. only mattered because women were used for procreation and to ensure that the child was um the child of the, the patriarch the right you know that's it Yep. Yeah. Yep. But and people are like, well, why doesn't gay marriage exist for always? And I was like, because it wasn't necessary because marriage was a transaction again. But yep. gay love, gay sex existed for always. And mm-hmm. men could have sex with whomever they wanted. And a lot of women were having sex with women, too. And people were having sex with whomever they wanted because they were different things. They were not connected. Right. And when I tell people that the, the Song of Solomon is about two lovers that are unmarried, they are like, what? <laughs> they were married. And I'm like, no, 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 no. They, they were not. They were not married. They got married, but they were not married. Nope. And so, yeah, all of those things start to like unravel, you know, and the ideas of monogamy. When I started studying about monogamy and how compulsory monogamy is a part of oppression. And I argue this is this could be a whole entire like Mm. episode. But I argue that without ending compulsory monogamy, you cannot end all oppression because one of the biggest forms of oppression is compulsory monogamy. Um. Yeah, and monogamy mm. is a big part of our culture, yeah. a huge part of yeah. our culture. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The idea of the nuclear family, it, it rests mm-hmm. on on monogamy. And even the idea that if you're dating someone, they own you, you own them, and there is no freedom to be like, hey, I met someone and I'm interested, and what are we going to do with that? That doesn't exist. You don't even have the freedom to tell a partner of yours that you met someone that piques your interest or that is arising something in you because that's considered cheating and wrong mm-hmm. and how dare you that you cannot even look at someone like if men look at another woman and they find her attractive it's like how dare you look at her why he's a fucking human like why are you so insecure about this relationship like right. these insecurities we appease them in the other in the name of compulsory monogamy and then we call the person that has normal attraction for another human being we call them a bad person and that in itself is oppression that in itself is saying you don't get to be the fullness of who you are in this relationship because I demand that you only look at me and only find me attractive. And that doesn't mean that it's a good go for all. You know, there is respect and consent and all of those things. But I should be able to tell my partner I met someone that I'm interested in without it being a fight, without mm-hmm. it being a disrespect, without, you know, yeah. and we can talk about it and decide yeah. what that means. And that's yeah. it. I, I almost wonder if at some point down the line, whenever your schedule frees up, we could actually have that conversation. Yeah. Awesome, because I would love to to even do an episode on on that and the ways that you know traditional quote unquote uh, forms of uh, sexuality are oppressive to us as a society. But mm-hmm. we have had so many uh, amazing conversations <laughs> within this this one right here. So I did want to ask you about one kind of tracking back to a topic we were on earlier. One project that you had started, and it didn't even really dawn on me that it was your project. And I had um, reached out on Instagram, and either you or somebody on your team had had touched base with me. Um, the Do Better Church project, mm-hmm. and um, I want to say thank you for that because that's that's a gift to to thank those you. of us who are survivors um, and, and have escaped those oppressive environments. 
but could you share a little bit about what prompted that project um and then yeah. maybe an invitation for people who who um you know our listeners who are stuck in some of those environments or are trying to find a safe place out what does that look like and and, and whatnot yeah so do better church began because i was getting a lot of stories of abuse in my dms um and probably because you were it, speaking it became, out so boldly on it yeah. and addressing like you were tweeting at yeah at brian houston before all of this like way, oh, I, way was, before. I was tweeting at all of, they they all blocked me like there is a highlight <laughs> reel I, I think i have two highlight reels on accountability on my instagram and you can see all of the pastors that have blocked me nice. uh so yeah i was yelling at them before it was popular to yell at them and they were just hating on me and blocking me and it was fine uh and then i would find Some other of them were sitting down and talking with you like i think carl lentz even took the time to reach Carl Lentz was the only one okay okay he was the only one yeah he was the only one um but yeah all of these people were sharing their stories with me and i was so grateful that they would trust me with their stories it's a big thing to trust someone with your story of trauma when most of the places that you can go to with stories of trauma in regards to religion are not believed you're not treated yeah. rightly uh but i believe them people tell me stories of trauma and i'm like i believe you i'm so sorry what can i do and and so but all of these became really heavy i couldn't I couldn't hold it anymore. And when 2020 and George Floyd happened, I started to see all of these pastors that were putting their pictures and that were being like, we hate racism and everybody's welcome. I'm like, shut the fuck up. You're liars. You're all liars. You are so racist. And so I started calling them out and being like, what are you going to do about it? Like, how are you going to guarantee that your churches and spaces are actually healthy for black and indigenous and Asian and, you know, all of these different people, brown people. And most of them were ignoring me. And as you can see, none of them have done anything in the last two years. But because of that, more and more people were sharing their stories with me. And I just put a call out on my Instagram and I said, well, what if like somebody wants to carry this with me? Because it's kind of getting too heavy for me to carry. And a full group of people were like, yeah, we'll do it. So we started to do better church and we started collecting stories of abuse where we wanted people to just be believed immediately, to be supported in whatever ways we could support them uh, and for their stories to be amplified in a safe way where if they wanted to stay anonymous, they could. They didn't have to put it in their name. They didn't have to put their face out there. They didn't have to risk the ostracizing that comes with sharing your story. But Do Better Church would do it for them. And then connecting them with different resources so that they could have um, a lot of different support. And we are trying to create a little bit more support and more resources right now. We're trying to get a few grants um, so that we have the money to pay a few people so that we can have different support groups um, led by professionals and organized in different ways for queer people, non-queer people, people of color. Um, so we've been doing that and working on that and applying to grants and trying to do um, a lot of work so that victim, when, I, when I left the church, I was alone, like more alone than I've ever been in my life. It was the most lonely experience of my life. And I remember being at home alone with three little, little, little kids. Uh, my, my son was a newborn and just feeling so lonely just desperately lonely and it's a really it's a really scary place to be in there was a lot of uh, suicidal ideation and there was a lot of pain and there was a lot of misunderstanding and people couldn't hear what i was saying nobody could understand except my immediate family but i needed people outside of that um and so i wanted to better church to be what i needed 
you know, when I left. Mm. And so, so that's how we started. And Janice is a part of it now. So she's, um, cause we want to create a few like other resources that are a little bit more creative and she's just so wildly creative. And mm-hmm. so I'm just trying, we're just trying to raise the money for it so that we can pay all of these people. Cause I, it's the same reason I didn't start a podcast before, cause I wanted to be able to pay people for it. Uh, but I'm so poor. So I needed to find <laughs> funding. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to find funding for Do Better Church. But that's how I started it. I started it because this is the weight of a, um, of church abuse is heavy. And I couldn't carry it alone. And I think that we could carry it together. And so Do Better Church grew and we get stories all the time and we honor those stories and carry them. And there are times that we all as a team even take a break because it's just too heavy. Yeah. There are some stories that are just so horrific that I, we just kind of sit with them and grieve together for a minute. Um, But yeah, that's, that's why we started it. And I'm excited to see what comes of it. And it will continue to be a place of accountability too, where we Mm -hmm. tell churches like the fuck we hate these. Don't do that. I love this. um, The, the time that we're in now and we're seeing things like this pop up, um, do better Mm -hmm. church, church clarity, Reclamation Collective, all resources mm-hmm. to help keep people safe, to help people heal. Um, I think it's so important and so needed. Joe, thank you so much for the the time that you've spent with us, the gift of your time, uh, the gift of the 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 resources that you're providing. Um, oh, and before we we go, um, could you just list them off? I mean, we'll put them all in the show notes. But if you could just name them real quick now, and then I'll put them in the show notes for people to to be able to click on them. Yeah. I'm really Joe Luman everywhere. Yeah. Like TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. I'm Joe Luman. Uh, just no dashes, no nothing. Just Joe Luman. And then um, and then my patron is the same. I think it's patron.com Joe Luman. And patrons don't get anything special. They they just literally support my work. Awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I love it. We're... We um we like to give like one little one little thing. Um, so I put posts in there, you know, for, for Patreon. I but send I, them I, pins. Like I send them a heretic oh, pin. Oh, okay. That's cool. So if you want a little pin, you know, go to, go to Patreon. Patreon.com. $20 though. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I have one of my friends, like my, the, the, he, he's not my friend. He's like one of my partners. He's, um, he's like, why don't you charge for them? And I'm like, I do like patrons can just join for $20 and then. And he's like, you would literally tell them, join for one month and then leave and I'll send you the pin. That's not charging them. And I'm like, that's true. That's true. I don't care. I don't. It's fine. I, don't I feel know. like podcasting I just don't, I, is weird. Unless you're a white man. I feel like podcasting is not a lucrative. It's just it, no, I, it's I, the only people I know in deconstruction spaces that are giving their time and effort and actually making a living team tend to be white men. We still haven't kind of moved <laughs> yeah. away from that that whole thing. But I feel like. I don't know. I know for Nate and I, uh, we were always in the minus because we want to pay our guests. I actually have to thank you for that because you have instilled in me that thought of uh, don't make your women of color um, do your free labor for you. Work for free. Mm. Yeah, and that's the reason I pay all my guests because I actually only have people of color on my podcast (laughs) right now. We're not there yet. We're Um, in the minus with with just, but it's okay. But it's a labor of love and that's the point of why we're doing our two patrons. Janice is one of our two patrons. She's like, we're like, yes, our favorite is like our number one patron. But like, we're doing this as a labor of love and the only white uh, guys we've had, no, we had one white straight guy, I think. But like, we queer guys we've we've given them a chance because you know evangelical churches were not good yeah. to them yeah. <laughs> definitely no. not 
I'll have but more so. Roberts keep... next season, so I'm excited. And and I told Matthias, like, hey, we pay all of our guests. And he's like, I'm not taking your money. And I was like, good, oh. I won't give it to you then. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you again. Um, really, really, really appreciate your your time and, and, and everything that you're doing. Um, so hopefully we'll see you around on, uh, on the internet for sure. Yes. <laughs> and well, enjoy your well, time in... Columbia and 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 yeah. rest and take care of yourself. Yes. You do fun, phenomenal work, and I uh, and you need you need your rest and your downtime. I'm so proud of you for going to do that. Take your kids, enjoy, have a lovely. Yes, I'm really excited. Things. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I can see. Well, we're now friends. So when I go on podcasts and or people come on my podcast, I'm like, oh, we're now friends. Okay, so like like it's official. Okay. So next I time it. I visit my sister in New York City, I'll be hitting you up. Yes. You know, and maybe we yes. can just you mean, you, drive oh, to Montreal. We'll all get together. Yes, and we'll Let's well, yes. Do it. Oh, Montreal will give you the tour yeah. i absolutely will it's come very to new york well, we it's talked kind of, with scott and we said we talked with scott and the whole team and we were like should we do one of these in new york because that feels like a good place to do to do it so if we do it like let's yeah. just get Coast together have a lot it. of fun meals and have fun oh absolutely we will we will that wraps up another episode of the full mutuality podcast if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't already have one, head over to our website, fullmutuality.com, for a list of all the apps you can find us on. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners, so thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of support, one of the best things you can do for us is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I'm pretty sure five-star reviews get you an extra crown in heaven. Look, seriously, if you found this episode insightful, spread the word and share it with your friends. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Full Mutuality. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. Mm-hmm.